You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. Stuart Goldsmith here today. I am welcoming Jimmy Carr back to the show in some rather unusual circumstances. There's no extra content from this one. We're releasing two parts this week as a little Christmas treat before we then take a break until the beginning of February. Apologies if you are already aghast at how bunged up I am. I'm sorry, my, I will keep this brief because my uh, voice is not in good nick just now. Uh, such is the wonderful seasonal weather here in Britain. So here's what we're doing. When Jimmy went on tour in November this year to, in his words, shill his new book, Before and Laughter, um, he had me come along in the second half of five of his live dates, six of his live dates, and then one of them got filmed and turned into a special thing, um, in order to talk to him, to interview him at length for an hour per show uh, about his book and his life and all of those sorts of things, which was uh, a real, a really kind gesture on his part. And I think we both got a lot out of it. And, of course, he allowed me to record them. Now, we recorded in lots of different places, and what you're about to hear is an amalgamation of some of those. It's two hours long, so rather than hoard any of it away for for insider's content, this is all out here for you this week. Part one and part two are both going out a couple of days apart from one another. And these are a really... I tell tell you, before I tell you any more about it, this has offensive language from the start. So this is a general uh, content warning. Please bear in mind, the way we did this was it was a live performance, a live interview in front of a thousand or more of Jimmy's fans to whom he just absolutely smashed an hour. So this was this is in the context of a room full of people who love Jimmy Carr and are laughing at Jimmy Carr. And uh, so far more so than usual, this takes place within the sacred circle known not just as uh, stand-up comedy, but also known as context. So please continue from this point on at your own risk. It will be filthy almost immediately. Um, and uh, the nature of the show is that it's a Jimmy Carr gig, right? And if you come to a Jimmy Carr gig, you know what you're going to get. If you come to the Comedians Comedian podcast, you're expecting something slightly different. So I'm telling you this now, this is unlike any previous episode of the podcast, such is the raucous and riotous nature of the interactions. I mean, this is people heckled constantly in almost all of the venues, uh, and you will hear Jimmy deal with those heckles. And in this episode in particular, um, describe some of his favourite heckles and his strategy uh, for comedy roasts. So this is the absolute furthest limit of anything you are ever going to hear on this podcast. All right, that's your warning. So that's how we did it. We went and did it. Jimmy went and did the hour. And then in the second half, I would go on and uh, and interview him live. And then he'd close with about 20 minutes of absolutely brilliant stuff. It was just a fantastic night. Every night we did it. And then the fifth or sixth one of them, uh, we did live in uh, Soho. We did live at the Strand Theatre, which is the most gorgeous and luxurious plush kind of building I've been in, let alone theatre. And that one was recorded for an internet platform called Moment House. I don't think that's available anymore, but uh, you might have a look if you are a subscriber of that platform. Now, that's all. I mean, I said I wasn't going to talk much and that was a big intro. I think that's everything I need to say. We're going to talk about uh, Sean Locke, the wonderful uh, late Sean Locke. 
Um, Jimmy's going to go into detail on his his uh, strategy, some of his favourite heckles, and we're going to start to get into his deep relationship with his late mother and how her passing affected the rest of her family. In part two, we will be talking uh, about his friendship with the late Professor Stephen Hawking. We'll find out why Jimmy doesn't dance, and uh, we'll also get in some more really... Oh, God, some of you... I mean, there is some stuff on heckles in this, but in the second half, he shares a lot of um, stuff on heckling and also... On, uh, there are some celebrity stories in there and some stuff about uh, the tax stuff, some stuff about HMRC. Um, that's Her Majesty's, what is it? Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Of course it is. And uh, and their pursuit of him, not to mention uh, his anxiety disorder. And we talk loads about that. So that's all coming up in part two. But for now, and you have been warned, this is Jimmy Carr. I never do this kind of thing, so I don't know what this is going to be like, but um, my friend Stuart Goldsmith uh, does a podcast called The Comedian's Comedian. He's also a brilliant comedian in and of himself, uh, uh, but he's going to interview me this evening live on stage. Let's see what fucking happens. Stuart Goldsmith, everyone, please, come over. Um, ah. I mean, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. I'm more nervous about this than I am about telling jokes in front of people. Should we? Do you want to refer to the guy that got punched? Do you want oh, to well, shout out the security guy? Well, yeah, the security guy got got lamped. At, the security guy got hit by that by the. Uh, I think we can say cunt by that. The, uh, <laughs> it's a weird thing that as well, where where you have to kind of kick someone out of a, a gig. I feel like I've got really good cunt dart. Like when people heckle a lot, and I love people heckling. I love it when people join in at shows, and I, I can tell sort of instinctively now, after doing it for twenty years, whether it's good humoured or not. You know that thing of like when he was trying, you just going right. This is just a, 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 a aggressive. It felt a little bit cokey to me. <laughs> you know, thing like like I don't I don't do coke, but you kind of go, that's a guy that sniffs something awful. And yeah, when he's doing an entire song, like two verses and a chorus, that's probably the moment at which you think he should leave. Yeah. But it's a difficult thing, though, because it's also that thing, I'm always minded of the fact that guy and his and he's, uh, he's cunt mate. Uh, <laughs> there is something, though, of like, those guys bought tickets to come and see me. And you, like, as a performer, especially when you're starting out, when you're sort of doing your first Edinburgh's and things, I remember doing the dance hall, which is just around here, isn't it? It's this bit of Manchester. Um, I remember doing a gig there, and it's like a 400 seat or whatever, and like people buying tickets to see me in like 2001, 2002, and it meant the world. It always means the world to you when people come out and want to spend an evening with you, listening to your jokes, right? It's, I, I love you too, but we have. We should see other people. It just <laughs> feels. God. It's good. This is going to flip flop back and forth wildly between sincerity and the Jimmy you know. I think. That- well, it's, it's a weird thing, though, when people come out to shows, so I'm very aware that those guys... And you often... I met a guy once that got kicked out of a show, like, two years later, on a train, and he was like, oh, yeah, we were just fucking hammered. <laughs> it feels like it's more of a... I think that thing as well about a shared experience... Like, I feel terrible for the security guard, because he got here. He also, <laughs> fucking legend, has continued with his shift and gone, yeah, it's nothing. He's still here. Yeah, no. He's in now. Pretty good. Pretty good. In fairness, he got into it because he's hard. Um, <laughs> he's not like six stone, he's fucking built. Um, but yeah, it is, it's, a, it's, kind of a, it's a nice sh- to have that shared experience because my sort of whole thing on the last year and a half, the last 18 months, now how you feel, it was like that live experience of being in a room with other people. You're 30 times more likely to laugh when you're here than watching it on Netflix or watching it on TV. 
because it's like a social noise. Have you, just, have you just plucked the figure 30 out of no, the air? No, there was a, a study in, I think it's Colorado. I forget the name of the academic, but I'm... I believe you, but it would be yeah. easy to go, it was in Colorado, the study. It's the guy you that came up with it. benign vi- violation. You'll know the guy. Oh, this guy. Yeah, yeah. Just, and fucking Google it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, we should, yeah, we should, t- we should talk about the book. So I wrote my... I think I, think I wrote my autobiography, yeah. Yeah, you did. Has anyone read it yet? Has anyone managed to read it or get more than... I mean, it only came out like a day ago. I have. I have. There's an audio book. They... Oh, yes. Yeah, this is... Yeah, 200 people bought the book as, as like part of the ticket this evening, oh, and then they didn't lorry. fucking arrive. Yeah. yeah. Because, uh, because Boris Johnson, eh. <laughs> ah, fuck, you know. We've run out of fuel. <laughs> Sorry, Britain's closed. So the book, for those of you who are... Well, for all of you, who've paid for it and not yet read it, thank you. It's apparently getting sent tomorrow morning by Quirkus, the, the people, so... But... Via, via a lorry. So, yeah. good luck. By an electric delivery man. <laughs> So it's, hard, it's an autobiography, but it's not just an autobiography. It's kind of half an autobiography and half a self-help manual. It's a kind of guide to how to be happy and declutter your head and I sort had, your life out. Yeah, I, I, it was kind of... Whenever I read an autobiography, I say this in the book, but whenever I read one, I sort of think, oh, this guy talks about himself a lot. It's... it's <laughs> fucking hell. 300 pages and all he's talked about is his fucking life. I don't care if you are David Niven. Fucking shut up. And it, there's that weird sense of just going, I don't want it just to be about me. And it's like, I benefited a lot from self-help. Um, it, w- making a transition from working in an oil company in middle management to being a comic. That was the thing that really kind of changed my life. So I felt like I wanted to share that. And the problem with self-help is it's, it's a very low bar. Eckhart Tolle can't write dick jokes. And <laughs> he fucking can't. And it's quite earnest. I don't know if anyone here is a fan of like self-help stuff. But there's really good stuff in there. But you have to kind of trudge through quite a lot of earnest, granola-eating, <laughs> sandal-wearing... Fuck it. Ah. I, and I like funny stuff. I like everything to be quite light. So it's quite... There's got serious bits in the book. I mean, there's very serious yeah. bits about depression and grief and all of the you know, stuff that's in life. But I think you can look at everything through the prism of comedy. I think you can make everything lighter and life is just better. For sure. I mean, and there's, I like, there's literally a your mum joke every third page, I would say. So I, don't I, think I it's dry. There's the dry, like your mum. Uh, there's a lot of that. That's too easy. That is too easy. Um, Five minutes, I owe you a Coke. Yeah. The, it's, uh, yeah, I suppose it's that thing of like, it's like, like the mechanic of heckling as well. It's that thing of like going, you kind of wait, there's a moment, bang. If you nail it, it's such a great thing. Like that. Well, there was, well, there was one here in the, in the show, like maybe, and I should say, you took more abuse in the first ten minutes than I think I've had on stage in my entire career. But about... 12 minutes in, it was about your hair. Someone says, a bald spot from up here. Yeah, that was a great line. It was a great line, and Jimmy took it really nicely. You were like, yep, fine, good. No, but I think... Good technique. But it's also that thing if you go, if you go and see... I don't know, if you go and see Adele live on stage or Ed Sheeran or whatever, you can't do that. None of you, none of you can do that. You can't do that. But the great thing about a sense of humour, and partly what the book is about, is going, look, the best joke you'll ever hear, the funniest person you know, best night you'll ever have, won't be with me. Or Stuart. The best night will be with friends and family. It'll be an in-joke, and you'll be as funny as anyone. Like, that's the thing about comedy, is, like, anyone can do it. We all do it all the time. It's such an important part of, like, it's how I define friendships. If I don't laugh with someone, I don't fucking hang with them. It's... HMRC. Like HMRC. Let's get into that now. That's... I could talk about HMRC all day. So, 
I mean, the question, the thing people want to know is how much money did you save in tax? <laughs> Fuck all. Despite quite a lot of effort on my part. I'm, I'm literally, I'm confident in saying I'm the only person in this room that would have been better off financially getting it, taking advice from a Nigerian general over email. It's like, <laughs> it couldn't have gone any worse for me. I suppose it's that thing, though, where every day's a school day and something like that happening and being on the front page. I think people thought I was... My perception is people thought I was quite cool with it, that I was like, I oh, he doesn't give a fuck. There's more Panama papers out today. It seems like a lot of people are doing it. I fucked up. But when you fuck up like that, and you, it was easy for me in the middle of cancel culture. I was cancelled for something that was quite easy. Because... Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things they could have got you on material-wise, right? Oh, well, I mean, jokes. Fuck all that. You fuck apologising for jokes. But I got cancelled for something that you can be forgiven for because you can say sorry and pay the money back. So it's kind of, you, people go, okay, fair enough. Yeah. But, but when it's something more complex, I think we've got cancel culture, but we have, there's no mechanism for forgiving anyone. There's no naughty step that someone... So I went on 8 out of 10 cats that week, and I was surrounded by friends. So, I had, so Sarah Millican was there, Mickey Flanagan was there, and Sean Locke was there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but I mean... Yeah. Of all... Yeah. Of all the things Sean did for me over the years, and really, you know, you don't think of it like this as you're going through it. And Sean and I had a, a great working relationship. We did, like, over 250 TV shows together. And the, kind, the, the really kind thing he did for me that day on that show was he was fucking hilarious. <laughs> and he addressed it, and he talked about it, and he was fucking hilarious at my expense. And he was, he was, brilliant. He was what Sean is. He was, he's always fucking brilliant. I mean, they're, they're just to digress and talk about Sean a little bit, because... Yeah. I've, you know, lost a friend and it's, um, it was an interesting thing when he died, I got, like, I just cried a lot on the day and watched videos of us and, and realised how much of our career we'd sort of shared. Uh, and, and then the next day I just got sick. You sort of forget how visceral, uh, how physical grief is. I just got really sick. I just was really, like, laid out sleeping for 14 hours and, like, I thought I had fucking COVID. I was just, like, wiped out with this thing. <laughs> And, and lost my voice. And then I went to see this, like, uh, this physio. And he went, oh, no, we get this a lot with, uh, with grief. Yeah. Because there's nothing to say. So what's something that you learnt from Sean in terms of your comedy? Because I know you're a big student of comedy. You love... You've seen you at the Montreal Comedy Festival or the Edinburgh Festival. You're always going and seeing and supporting comedy, watching loads of people, and really sort of absorbing and supporting... Well, we, we started doing Cats together. So we, we sort of uh, had the idea... Channel 4 gave me a show um, to do... And I kind of went, right, okay, how, how are we going to do this? I wanted Sean to do it because he was kind of the heavyweight on the circuit. I felt like he was kind of the best guy working that hadn't really had a big break. Um, he's very good at waiting. He was very good at, like, I suppose, comedy. I talk a lot about superpowers of comedians in the book. I talk about, like, things that comics do really well. He had an amazing timing. And not just on, like, ti- people talk about comic timing. You don't know what, well, the, the feed line comes first and then the punchline. Great. A little pause in between. He was great at kind of just snipering on a show. Mm. So that thing of like, he would wait for everyone else to do their thing and just come in with a, with a line. And some of my favourite things he's ever said, it's just like in that little moment, he just, he sort of gets in. And I think that thing of like, when I've done other shows, like watching him do that, you, you um, I mean, you never learn from what people say, you learn from watching him. Yeah. Like carrot in a box. Like carrot in a box. What well, carrot in a box? Carrot in a Box, how Carrot in a Box came about was it was an idea that had been floating around Endemol for a TV show for years because they did things like Deal or No Deal. So that was an idea for a show. I don't know whether that would sustain for now, but they had... (laughs) 
they had this crazy idea, and then there was a Christmas special. We did a Christmas special of Cats, and we went, fuck it, let's play some games. And we pitched it, and and everyone went, okay. And Sean went, no, this is fucking great. (laughs) Um, Immediately, I got pitched it and went, I mean, we could take it out in the edit if it's not for points. Does everyone know what Carrot in a Box is? Are there people who... Yeah, fuck, fuck, fuck. It's my people. and the, uh, so it was pitched as like, and I went, no, I'm not sure. John went, no, I don't know. Sean immediately, and Sean immediately knew, I've got this. Sean knew, right, I've got this. I could be funny in this scenario, which is kind of a weird thing to just, he got it. And then, and then the crippling effect it had on John <laughs> was just something to behold. I find it very cathartic I, uh, to, just to talk about him. I just, you know, he was... Uh, he was a really, really... Like, to make me really cry with laughter. And my theory on Sean is that all jokes are like... All jokes work in the same way, right? So the inside baseball conversation that we could have is all jokes are two stories. And in the first story, you force the audience to make an assumption that turns out to be erroneous in the second part of the story. Surprise, laugh, great. And Sean had this thing where he looked like... If he'd been a gas fitter then, right? <laughs> Honestly, if he'd been on your crew as a gas fitter, you'd go, yeah, he looks like, he looks like the foreman. Great. Because you look like a proper bloke, right? So when he was doing this incredible, surreal, flight of fancy comedy, it was like amazing because it was coming out of this guy. So everything was like a bigger, was heightened. So it could yeah. absolutely make me cry with laughter. And did. I mean, I had to keep tissues under the desk on 8 out of 10 Cats Does <laughs> Countdown. She had two sets, one for Rachel, <laughs> one for him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, uh, oh, it's a weird thing, because I write loads of jokes about Rachel for the show. And then I've done a couple of gigs, you know, show, uh, and sometimes we'll do a bit about Cat's Countdown on stage. And then the most awkward thing... Well, I'll tell you the gag first. Right, so we talked about her, like, she wears the very short skirts on, on Cat's Countdown. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you can see her pie to three decimal places. <laughs> She's doing the maths, I saw her workings out. And... Men will ask me about Rachel all the time. Men will come up to me in the street or in a hotel or whatever, and they'll go, have you fucked Rachel Riley? <laughs> go, yeah. <laughs> but you've got to promise not to tell her. <laughs> she just thinks she gets sleepy when she drinks. <laughs> now, obviously, that's a joke. She's a happily married woman. I'm also in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'd be like a rat up a drainpipe. I would... <laughs> I'd ruin that. I I would crawl over broken glass to suck the cock of the last man that fucked her. No, I'm just saying, she's so fit I'd fuck her dad. So those... Right, so I I had some jokes about Rachel. And then Rachel's a legit friend of mine, so I'd always have to call her and go, I've written a joke about you that I'm doing on stage. And she'd go, go on, and I'd go... Oh. <laughs> it's about sucking precious cock, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> She's a fucking good laugh, she's mine. Let's centre on the book. So it's half autobiography, half self-help. Let's stick with the autobiography side of it because there are loads of things I discovered about you that I wouldn't know from watching your comedy from reading the book because unlike a lot of comics, you do jokes that are kind of because you do one-liners, they don't often reveal anything about your actual life. I never thought... I, w- I mean, I always thought of myself as an entertainer. And I always thought, like, that thing of, like, people have paid money to see you 
and you'd better deliver on being funny. And then I didn't want to be... I suppose I was a little bit self-conscious about being a, a, a sort of very middle-class, over-educated bloke and going, I don't think anyone cares about my fucking opinion. I'm just going to tell them jokes. Yeah. Because that was, I was leaving that sort of serious world behind. And I'm, I suppose this book is slightly revealing in terms of going... It's, it's meant to, and I sent it to five or six close friends, um, and I wanted it to feel like going for lunch on a long walk with me. That's mm-hmm. what I do. When, like, if I play like Montreal or whatever, I'll see a friend, we'll walk, get lunch, and you know, spend about five hours together and chat about everything. And that's kind of what, the book is kind of what it's like. Um, pretty funny and also very serious. I don't really do small talk. I tend to get quite serious quite quick. But then it's all quite light. Yeah. So there are, there are things, because I mean, I, I think you'd, you'd uh, agree that that is quite unusual in British comedy and in American comedy, because I know you've said in the past, when you go to the States, you're like an alternative comic, because you're some nice, posh bloke in a suit doing one-liners, I'm and weirdly, no one does that over there. I'm weirdly cool in the States. If I play the comedy cellar <laughs> or the store or do shows, I can sort of sell a big room in the States, and I'm quite cool. And, and, it's and, like, and here, I'm quite main because I'm on TV a lot. It's like it's mainstream. I've always viewed it as quite a weird thing because a lot of the TV I do, especially lately, I did that thing, I Can See Your Voice. Did you see that thing on BBC One? Yeah. It's like seven o'clock on BBC One with Alison Hammond. <laughs> it, was, it, it was the middle of lockdown, mate, you know. <laughs> it was shit. Well, I really liked the idea of like trying to find a different gear. I'm trying to sort of do it now. I'm trying to sort of, I'm building up because I've got a, a new special coming out at Christmas. On, uh, I don't think we're announcing it, but it's on Netflix, whatever. I'm sure they won't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> so I'm doing it, I've got a new special for them, and then so I'll, I'll lose an hour of material from this show, but the tour continues. So I'm writing new stuff, and I'm trying to write very slightly longer form, so like still one liners and still the same tone. Well, we're on you being weirdly cool in the States. One of the things I loved seeing at the Montreal Comedy Festival was you doing the Roastmaster battles. Oh, yeah. So roasting, as you know, I mean, we st- we've started to have roast battle here in the UK, but it's been going on in the States for years and years. And Jeff Ross holds the Roastmaster Invitational. Can you just tell us a bit something about that? Because when seeing you absolutely boss a room full of incredibly cool American comics, Dave Chappelle's one of the judges, you're annihilating people, and Dave Chappelle's crew are there, and they're all brapping a man from Slough. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that seems reasonable to me. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's an odd thing. I think roasting is, um, I don't know what the audience feel, but I think that's where you first learn to be funny, is with your friends and taking the piss. There's a lovely Australian expression. Uh, you call a mate cunt, and you call a cunt mate. I think there's something about, with your close friends, taking the piss is sort of the language of friendship. Or certainly was in my childhood. And that thing of like going, everyone took the piss out of everyone fucking constantly. It was, that was the whole of what school was. But it was still your mates. That's what, and that thing of like going, that little thing of like roasting really reminds me of that. And it's for a, yeah. a childlike kind of joy. And is there, is there a, you're so good at like you win every year. I think you've won every year, have you? Yeah, yeah I'm good at roasting, but I'm good at, well, it's also, it's a joke writing competition. Yeah. And I'm good at writing jokes. So what's the secret of like, how do you go <laughs> for someone? I mean, yeah, sure, you write more like short jokes. It definitely advantaged you as a short joke writer, whereas most of the other comics competing write longer observational bits. But is there a particular way that you would go for someone? If you think of like a a celebrity, if you were to kind of, okay, what's the system for going, right, how do I get the most painful, hurtful, on-the-edge stuff about? I'm trying to think. I bumped into... uh, uh, This is a very name-droppy story. I was... (laughs) I should say, all of the stories in the book are very name-droppy stories. It's very hard to imagine Jimmy going for a pint with one of his mates from school. I felt... I felt like, um... I felt like... Apart from that one. (laughs) It's fucking gay. Uh, I I remember writing a joke about 
Like, I suppose it's that thing that everyone's got to get the reference, right? So everyone's got to know the thing. So, uh, what's a, a good famous person, Joe? I, uh, uh, Madonna is in her 50s, but she's got the body of a man half that age. <laughs> it's like the expectation of the fact you've heard a million times. And, you just, and so in your head, you've already jumped ahead. You're bored by the setup of that, and then it goes another way. So it's a really good kind of route into roast jokes. I quite like them. I think there's, there's kind of a, there's a magic to them. And it's, it's, when, it's when you kind of go, you're talking about something that seems... Uh, what, was the, what was the one that I wrote recently about? Um, this, this will seem silly to you, but when Zane left One Direction, for me, it was like 9-11. <laughs> I didn't care about that either. <laughs> it's a, Very it's good. Because you think, you, you think it's done... Yeah. I like the fact, I told it the other day and someone was genuinely offended, but it was the Zane bit that got <laughs> me. It's interesting that though, isn't it? It's like the little turn of jokes and the, the, the joy that they bring. It's such a lovely... So when it comes to, those, when it comes to, to dealing with hecklers, and I know and often we've seen your comedy specials where you're like, okay, it's open season, so the next five minutes, go for it. Yeah. How do you feel at that moment? Do you feel, is there a tension there for you or are you so confident? I don't know. I, I slightly feel a bit like, um, I feel very lucky with the audience. That I, you know, so I've, I've, built, I've gigged, every, I've toured every year for 20 years and I have, there's quite a lot, there'll be people in this evening that have seen me most of those years. So people come back, there's a loyalty and I really do appreciate it but my audience have my sense of humour and so there's something about the heckle thing where you go, oh, this is bulletproof. If I don't think of something funny to say, they'll think of something funny to say. It doesn't matter if they win. This is like the Darren Brown trick where you play the chess grandmasters off against each other. Yeah, right? it's, it's that thing if you go, well, it's, it's, it, it's sort of fine. There's a thing I'm going to do at the end of the show this evening because people send in some funny stuff. But I've been getting people to send in text messages for the last like two years on tour and it's built into this whole section of the show because you go, well, obviously, we share a sense of humour. It's not exactly the same, but there's a big overlap. And it's the only sense of humour to have, as far as I'm concerned. Because I don't see the point in mild comedy. You don't need comedy in the good times. You, you need it when something terrible happens in your life. When something awful happens, you need to have a fucking laugh. Because you can't... Yeah, you, well, it's true, though, isn't it? You can't... You can't... What, well, sorry? I, I, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, for, for, certainly for live... Everything would be me. But for TV shows, there'll be like a writer's room that will write them together because sometimes if you're doing two, two records a day, back to back, it's like you need to come up with a volume of stuff. So I've got like... They bring it from the back of your head to the front. That's yes. quite clever. That's good. That's a fucking great line that was lost <laughs> in the mist there. That's what you aspire to. <laughs> a sentence people could understand. <laughs> So this is Jimmy. Before we get back into this, loads more stuff coming out soon. And of course, a whole part two to come uh, in a couple of days. Just a reminder, no extra content on this episode. But if you are enjoying the podcast, feel free to go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, at which point you can join the Insiders Club. At which point, in which place you can join the Insiders Club for a minimum £2 a month donation, but as much as you like. Uh, and you can get all of the extra content from every show that has it, as well as ad-free episodes going forward and going backward, because you get access to a whole other private feed full of extra stuff, hundreds of hours of content, and uh, all of those good things. Plus, you get to join the Slack app, and I've just been doing an important editing job uh, in my cellar studio, and I've been griping on the uh, Slack app in the meantime. So it's mostly a means of me pointing out that I'm 
laughing at myself whilst editing my own stuff. So, I mean, take it or leave it, really. It's the extra content you're there for. That's the key bit. And I also just wanted to thank a bunch of people who have recently become insiders because um, we had a big changeover in how the, the back end of that platform works. It's called Awesound. It's absolutely brilliant. If you are a podcaster, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, but it was being transferred from one site to another. And so for a month, I didn't get notified that any of you were joining. So thank you to, and this is like a month's worth, Laura, SL, Ian, DS, Elizabeth, Akash, Tanya, James, Catriona, Matilda, Kurish, Eva, Catherine, Karen, Lorelai, Helene, Lindsay, Thor, Peter, Louis, JW, KS, David, Dr. L, PM and Jeff. But I think two or three of those people actually only joined for a couple of days uh, in order to get hold of the foil arms and hog extras. Some people do that, but bless you, those of you that stick around and support the podcast. All of that stuff is available at comedianscomedian.com and you can go to stuartgoldsmith.com to find out all about my resilience stuff and the sessions I do for business if you or someone you know uh, is at work and is in need of a January Kickstarter. Um, I've got a bunch of those uh, booked now. Those are very exciting. So find out more about that at stuartgoldsmith.com. That's all. Let's get back to Jimmy Carr. I mean, I like doing those roasts where, you can't, where you're telling, you know, when it's high stakes, where the American ones, like the Comedy Central roasts, are, like, really high stakes. Because you did the roast of Rob Lowe. That was the, the, yeah. the Pete Davidson one. Yeah. Can you tell... Are you comfortable telling... Are you comfortable sharing that joke with us? Yeah. Uh, so Pete Davidson is a, is, is a friend of mine. He's on Saturday Night Live. He's a really good guy. His father, um, fun fact, died in 9-11. He's one of the firefighters that ran into the building and try to save people's lives. Incredible. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, because we're about to do a joke. So (laughs) let's not get, but I mean, uh, clearly an incredible guy and a proper actual hero. So I said, I'm appalled that people would come here and make jokes about the sacrifice Pete's heroic father made on 9-11. This is not the roast of Pete Davidson's father. That was in 2001. (laughs) Not the worst thing I said that night. (laughs) Pete... Uh, but, uh, yeah, well, I, there was another lady there called Ann Coulter, who, and Ann Coulter's like a big Trump supporter, and none of us were, and this was pre his election, and, and so I, I said, um, and she's like, a, she's like their Piers Morgan, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, <laughs> Piers Morgan is actually a close personal cunt. Uh, the, <laughs> So I said, Ann Coulter is one of the most repugnant, repugnant, hateful, hatchet-faced bitches alive, but it's not too late to change, Ann. You could kill yourself. <laughs> wow. There must be, there must be with all of those things, like the, the jeopardy is really high, right? The stakes are enormous when you're doing gags like that, because if you get the tone wrong on something as kind of as, as kind of je- jeopardy ridden as 9-11 if you mess that up that could go really wrong and that's something that you, you talk about in the book is the sort of the fact that um, comedians are comfortable with failure we're comfortable with risk we're comfortable with failure and so you know, achieving that yourself enables you to kind of I think it's, make I think better it's, choices I think that thing of like the you know, comedy the book basically is comedy as an analogy for my life and comedy's made my life a bit better in, in all respects but that thing of like being comfortable with failure like I've written more jokes that don't work than w- jokes that work mm. clearly some of you might think um, 
But it's that weird thing where you go, you get very comfortable with going, nope, that doesn't work, yep, that works, no, that doesn't work. You, and you don't get attached to it, you just do it. And I think that's a really good lesson for creativity because the world that we're presented with on social media is so fucking perfect. Like, I wouldn't want to be a kid growing up today looking at Snapchat and looking at Instagram because you go, well, everyone's so fucking perfect and they never get anything wrong. Mm. And you never hear the songs that aren't hits. You just hear this incredible... Yeah, it's, it's terrifying, right? But actually, the failure thing in showing that is, is like... And talking about it is like really... It's a really important stage of creativity. What's your most offensive joke? What's my... It depends what offends you, motherfucker. I... Uh, <laughs> It's probably something about... What's your name, sir? Jamie. Jamie. What do you do, Jamie? Hmm? Aerials and satellite. Okay. Uh, he's Elon Musk's best friend. They're flying up to the moon tomorrow. Um, I'm sorry, what's your name again? Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Um, I don't know if you know this, but scientists say um, the largest sexual organ in the body is actually the mind. But that's just because those scientists haven't seen Jamie's mum's fanny. Um, no, I, oh no, Jamie, Jamie, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jamie's mum for letting us use it this evening. It really is a wonderful place. Uh, I love what she's done. I'm not being rude, Jamie, but I think, you know the most offensive joke tends to be the thing that's, that's going to it offends you. As there's nothing universal, people tend to get offended by the thing. I mean, I'll never forget what your mum said to me. <laughs> Let go of my ears. I know what I'm doing. I'm not being rude there, by the way, Stuart, because I'm not being rude. I actually made Jamie's mum come. I, I remember distinctly because she dropped her chips. That, that may be the most offensive joke for you. But it depends what you're offended by because it tends to be... Sometimes when people get offended on behalf of another group, sometimes people are genuinely offended, like something's happened to them. But I did a joke last night... Um, Did someone steal your pot of gold? I don't know why you're... You're just chipping in. It's, it is what it is for you. I mean, I tend not to get... I think intent is a very underrated thing with jokes. If it's meant to be a funny thing, if it happens to... And I think it's also the relief. I did a joke last night. I did a new material last night, and I had a joke, the punchline of which... I won't tell you the joke, because I frankly can't remember it. Um... It was, but what? Oh my God! <laughs> You're offended by the idea of that joke. <laughs> but it's that thing where you go. Someone had been affected by the disease that I had a joke about, and they said, "Oh my!" It was this guy was really laughing, and and this woman was like needling him in this. I said, "What's going on?" And she went, "Oh my my!" He went so quite sheepishly. He went, "Oh my dad just died of bowel cancer," and I found that really funny. Because the joke was about bowel cancer. And it was like such a cathartic thing if you're in the right state of mind. If you feel like you can laugh about it, I think we laugh at things and we process them through laughter. That's my, my take on it. So, so for you, are jokes effectively amoral? Because they're just a case of like a mathematical formula of getting a thing. Like it doesn't matter that it's bowel cancer because if you can get a laugh by plugging it into that you know, that, that other half of a joke, you smash them together, you create a new idea, no, it I, creates a laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's yeah. neutral, effectively, because well, it's just well, no, the sort of froth no, I, of them. I don't think they are neutral. I think they're important. I think that... So I did a gig, there's a charity, in, like the Montreal Comedy Festival, which is like wonderful comedy festival. If you ever get the chance to go, it's amazing. It's all the fun in the world. But 
Uh, they do a gig there. It's in the middle of the afternoon. Hope and Cope is the name of the charity. And they put on this show in a hospice. And it's an audience of people. It's about 200 people in the kind of rec room of a hospice. They're all dying of cancer. Uh, and some doctors and nurses in there. And we do a gig every year, right? And it's in the afternoon. And I did it. I've done it maybe... S- what, sorry? Oh, no, that's fine. You can, you can laugh at any point in this. It's... That's good. If there's a tension, sometimes, sometimes people giggle at the setup if it's something really fucking serious. So I did this gig in, in a hospice, right? I've been doing it like seven years. Adam Hills and I did the first year together. I've, I always go back, always do it. It's a lovely gig. And I did it this last, 2019, and I, was, I went on last, but it was just a scheduling thing. It wasn't like being a big deal. But the other comics did brilliantly. My friend Alonzo Bowden did it. It was fantastic. And I, I was with a mate at the back, and no one had mentioned death or cancer in a room that was full of death and cancer. And I said to my mate, it's weird, no one's mentioned the elephant in the room. And he went, you should. And I went, yeah, gonna. <laughs> and, then, and then I felt like, I genuinely felt like that thing of like, well, I would be shortchanging them if I didn't. So I went up on stage and with some degree of trepidation, went up to the mic in front of 200 people dying of cancer and went, come on, we haven't got much time. Well, I have. <laughs> and, then, and then I followed it up with, uh, is anyone here from last year? Uh, <laughs> But the laugh, I mean, the, the gig, it was a really good gig. Everyone did well. But that joke in particular, it was like the volume was turned up and suddenly there was air in the room and this dark, ominous presence of something that's affected all our lives. I mean, cancer, I can't think of anyone that hasn't been affected by it, is taken down and laughed at. And it feels really empowering and, yeah, it's great. I think there's a... You know, if you, if you go to any of those, and there's no one in here that hasn't been affected by grief or death or, you know, something awful, especially the last 18 months that we've had. And you go, if you can laugh at that thing and in those moments... I mean, I just did a massive 20-minute section on COVID. And it's a... Like, we've all... We have had a fucking awful... Especially... And not so much for me. I'm in my late 40s. But the younger people, fucking 18 months stolen from me for university or school or whatever, it really feels like it's... And the mental health crisis that's going on, it's so powerful to laugh at that. Because it feels like you've got control over it. You talk in the book about um, your mum and your motivation as a comedian on some level being to cheer her up. I, I know I've got a weird laugh. I laugh on an in, not an out, which is not that unusual. It's like, you know, one in a thousand people. Are there. It's like, ah, ah, ah. It's because it's, it's an in-breath that catches ah, when I laugh, not an out-breath. Ha. Ah. It's like a, a donkey fucking a seal when I laugh. It's like, ha, 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 ha. Like a learning disabled goose having a panic attack. But my, my mother had a legit weird laugh. So she had narcolepsy, which is a sleep disorder. And she had a thing called cataplexy where you lose muscular control when you experience a strong emotion. So for laughter, she would lose muscular control. So, so you know, have you met someone that makes no noise when they laugh? They just do the weird like wobbly. So she, so she had, she had like quite an extreme version where she would fully fucking stroke out when she... <laughs> shouldn't really joke about strokes. If I ever have a stroke, I'll be laughing on the other side of my face. Uh, <laughs> I feel like with that stroke joke, I've really let the side down. The... But genuinely, like if she... I was massively motivated to make her laugh because growing up, if she walked in with a tray of teas, if you could say shit funny enough... She would, it was like Acorn Antiques. It was genuinely that. Like when she was driving, honestly, it was so fucking dangerous. Like you'd have to grab the wheel if anyone said anything funny. 
such an incredibly funny woman and also suffered depression. Um, so, and I think if you, if you speak to comedians, if you ever meet a comedian, you interview a lot of comedians, I think the question is which of your parents was sick? Because yeah. I think a lot of us that really value humour have an unhappy or a difficult atmosphere at home and humour's the way you make it okay. I sort of in my family, I was very much bez from the Happy Monday, uh, Mondays. I was sort of there for vibes. <laughs> I could sort of diffuse a bomb. I could make it okay. Yeah. Which okay. was, it's an interesting, you know, as a child, you don't realise that that has a, has a psychological effect, but, it, it, you know, it does. And do you, do you have a brother, two brothers? I've got two brothers, yeah, I've got an what older brother. What was their role brother. in that dynamic? Were they similarly close to your mum, or was it just about you making everything okay? Uh, it was about me making everything okay. Uh, my, my younger brother was, was, I mean, I was like 20, uh, 25, 26 when my mother died, which is young, but not tragic. My, my younger brother was 14, so then we became, um, we had to take care of him. Yeah. Which was, that's a weird thing. It's a weird dynamic. I mean, we, we, yeah, he's brilliant, but it's, that's a weird thing to, to sort of have to do. And do you think that that, does, that need, that requirement to look after your younger brother, did that kind of shut down your view of what was possible in the world such that you ended up working in a job that didn't make you happy? Was it because it was a need for security? No, no, that was kind of after. The, 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 I was already on the, on the, uh, on the road to, to telling jokes. And okay. Yeah, it was, like, it, was, it was fine. I mean, you know, I don't think he didn't need um, money. He just needed someone to take care of him. He just, you know, it wasn't like a financial, I need to work in a job to provide. It was, it was fine, but he just needed, uh, yeah, just needed someone, to, you know. All kids needed to be loved, I think. And he just needed a bit of that. But, I mean, he really lost out on, you know, she was this amazing character yeah. and then gone and you're kind of... I don't know. I can never make up for that. Yeah. When you're on stage telling jokes about your mum dying and calling her a fat slag and kind of talking to heaven and then pointing she, down to hell... She was, uh, she, was, she was pretty overweight and she caught a dick or two. I mean, I'm just... I'm not, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what? I mean, you know, she was a very funny woman. She would have laughed. Yeah. I often, sometimes I will catch the eye of someone who's the age my mother was when she, my mother died in mid-50s. And I'll catch the eye of a woman about that age. I had it last night where I really made this woman fucking weep with laughter. I was <laughs> so fucking pleased. Does it There's be- something nice about it because like, she had like a, a, quite an edgy sense of humour. Like that, I remember like growing up, like going to school, and like people made a big deal of swearing. And my mother, like every second word was cunt. Like, <laughs> she's like, if you ever said, "Oh, you look nice," she'd always go, "I look like a whore at a christening." <laughs> she had a lovely turn of phrase. Do, do Actually, you... that joke—the joke in the first half—that that it didn't get much of a laugh, but I don't care because it's a joke my mother used to tell a lot, uh, which was which was the you know I said my washing my cock is a full time job. Not the size, the filth. It's a joke my mother used to tell. She would, she would go through phases where she'd like have like one or two jokes that she knew and she'd tell fucking everyone. And it was always in the telling of it because she'd be telling people that had heard it like the week fucking before or whatever, but she'd go, she'd like waltz into the grocery store and go, here's one. <laughs> do, you, do you think there's something like beyond simply telling a joke about her, is there something celebratory? Is it kind of a victory over death 
in some way, to be able to celebrate her in that way and make a thousand people laugh at the idea that she's in yeah, hell, not in Yeah, I like the fact that I got to write, you know, in the, in the... I mean, the genesis of the book was Adam Kay called me. Uh, who's, you know that guy, you, you read that book, um, uh, uh, This Is Gonna Hurt, about the NHS and this junior doctor working in it. Uh, fucking brilliant book, it's really, really good. Uh, buy that. <laughs> so, really, uh, so anyway he phones me and he goes uh, he's had this big hit book he went I've got an idea we're going to do a fundraising book for the NHS we're going to get like 50 you know, people off telly to write stories about their experience with the NHS that's where the book came from I wrote a piece about my mother dying and, and really enjoyed the process I really enjoyed looking back and remembering her and yeah it's, it's really nice to put her name in the book and to talk about her and as someone who, it, like most of the comedians, I would say, most of the gigging stand-up comedians in the UK at the moment are observational comedians who tell stories about their own lives. So we hear about them in an airport or them at a family barbecue or those kind of things. Whereas your, because your style is so short joke, short joke, short joke, there must be, I mean, I've not counted them, but it's got to be 200 jokes you tell on stage tonight. Just hundreds and hundreds yeah, of Yeah, it's all fastballs. Yeah, it's all fastballs. And they're all kind of, they, they could all exist exist in a vacuum they don't reveal anything real about yourself I don't know I think there's a sense uh, I think the audience get when I'm being serious and when I'm not and they get what I mean and what I don't I think it's quite nuanced but I think language is incredibly finely tuned I, I spoke earlier like I told three jokes earlier about Black Lives Matter I bet you all know what my stance is but 100% you know as an audience I mean you know unless you, of course but you, you, you get that just from the, the way that it's done and the intonation. Mm-hmm. And you can joke about something and go around it. But you, you, people know what's a joke and what isn't a joke and what you're serious about and what you're not. And they kind of get it. Yeah, and absolutely. They, they get that the thing about, you know, yeah, I or think. The, or the anti-vax stuff. Well, the, yeah, the anti-vax stuff, they would get that my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know... I think they... I think they. <laughs> <laughs> Did we all see you decide not to do a joke then? No, but uh, I'm going to miss Simon when he's gone, but fuck it, it doesn't matter, he's not... <laughs> thinning of the herd. <laughs> well, yes, we absolutely get your angle, we get your personality, but we don't get your story. Most comics, most comics, I would mm. say, in the UK, they will tell us their story and about their life and often will know the names of their partner and the names of their children in a way that I always think is a bit much. But there's, you get a lot of the story. With you... Well, a lot of celebrities give their kids silly names. But, which, 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 no, they end up regretting. But if you saw him, you, he just, he looks like an Adolf. Uh, <laughs> my point is... That in the book, I feel like you are revealing your true self to your public for the first time. Did that feel weird? Did it feel uncomfortable? Was it a challenge? Did it feel different to the relationship? You're sort of changing the relationship you I have think, with your audience. I mean, g- generally, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know what people think. I mean, I get, I'm so lucky because I'm in a job where I get a feedback loop about once every 20 seconds. I tell a joke and it's binary. You either laugh or you don't. It tends to be very few jokes like half the audience laugh at. It's like either you got them or you didn't. They work or they don't. And certainly the kind of stuff that I do. So you kind of go, right, well, that feedback loop I'm, so, I'm spoiled by. Because you write a book and it like takes you... It took me a full year. I mean, it took a long time to do it. And the audio book took a long time to do because we wanted it to, be, to, to pop. We wanted it to be good. Um, and, and then you don't know. So this week's been really nerve-wracking. And it's actually, I'm just getting the first few kind of responses from people reading it because, you know, it only came out last week. 
But it, it's been positive. It's been like, I think people are quite liking it. Was it hard to do? No, I don't think so. I think it's a, it's a weird thing where you go, I think you'd be mad to have no relationship with your father and to not replace that with a father figure. Okay. I've been very lucky in my life that I've had, when I lost my mother, uh, not one woman, but lots of women came into my life that, that, <laughs> that took that role. You know, so... Um, you know, like older women that I look to for that kind of guidance. Actually, some kind of my own age. And as a father figure, actually one of my friends is like two years younger than me and has really had that role as kind of a father figure in my life and a couple of older friends as well that were really... I think that the archetype of a father and what you look to, you don't have to go with nature. You can sometimes just go, fuck that, I'm going to pick that person. And just go for it's that thing of like you 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 go right that's uh, that's a person I admire I like the way I'm learning from looking at them and from watching them it's never about what you say I always think with comedy shows like no one remembers what you say they remember how you made them feel and that's true in life and sometimes you meet someone and you go fucking what a magnificent man what a magnificent woman I want to be like them when I grow up and I've been lucky enough to be around people that be incredible fathers and incredible mothers and very nurturing and kind and you learn from them. And what qualities is it in the, the particular friend of yours who became like a father figure to you, that guy, what qualities in particular are, your, are the ones that you felt you were most in need of? I, yeah, I suppose it's that thing of... Um, there's, there's, there's a little bit of... From example, I suppose. Um, I suppose like time. Like just spending time and, uh, and listening. I think comics are quite good at listening quite good at like going well look, look, I say that I'm fucking wittering on for two hours it's straight but <laughs> but actually it's like the, the good at actually actually listening not just hearing but really listening to what's being said and really kind of and hearing it for what it is I think that's kind of the best you can do as, as, a, as a parent to really kind of just listen and uh, <laughs> are you going to need to isolate your son from the world of fame because you're quite a you, you sort of operate within the world of fame, don't you? You kind of talk in the book about showbiz parties, you've got sort of showbiz anecdotes and stuff. Do you think there's anything kind of dangerous about that, ultimately, that you need to... I suppose to... that's the nervous thing about writing a book, because you go from being famous, which I'm very comfortable with, to being a celebrity. So I'm, I'm very comfortable being famous for what I do. Mm-hmm. I'm not really comfortable with being famous for who I am. And it's, it's an interesting kind of distinction. It's like, you know, the Queen or the Kardashians. Just they're famous for who they are. Mm-hmm. They don't fucking do anything, but you're just fascinated. <laughs> both got huge arses. Uh, they... <laughs> I like Kim Kardashian, but... And it's a big but. <laughs> it's a joke. They, uh, yeah, I, th- I suppose. I, I suppose a little bit. But no, I don't think it's... Uh, I think having like a solid, you know, base, not kind of, that's not an important thing, I think, in my life. I'm not in Hello Magazine showing off the new kitchen. Although, I've got a fucking nice kitchen. <laughs> I want that to be clear. And do you, do you think that um, one of the things that comes up in the book a lot is, like I said, the, the sort of the love for celebrity or the kind of the, de- the delight in rubbing shoulders with Sir Elton John? Or, and, and one of the interesting things that's is not, actually your. I don't know if that's, I mean, maybe that comes across in the book, but. He's a mate, and he's funny, and he tells great stories. That's, you know, I mean, it's, I, I'm, I make no apology. I've got, I've got lots of regular mates as well. We don't hear about any of them. Yeah, because you don't give a fuck about any of them. 
You want to hear about Stephen Hawking and Elton John? <laughs> I mean, it's, huh? it's incredible. I mean, I would. Can you tell us, here's a challenge, can you tell us uh, an anecdote about a non-famous friend of yours, like an old schoolmate or something? What, something that they did? Something... Some experience you've had with them. I mean, most of them... Some, I mean, something that isn't a kind of polished, show-busy kind of thing. I mean, some of them went to jail. Um, <laughs> tell us so... about those ones. It's always a weird thing when like, someone turns up to one... A friend of mine came to one of my shows in Oxford, and I went... I, like he said, oh, can I get two tickets? Yeah, sure. I haven't seen you in years. And then he came along to the show with this guy, and I went, how did you guys meet? And there was such an awkward... <laughs> you were cellmates, weren't you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Did you hang out with ruffians? How come? What was what was your what was your kind of who? What were your, yeah, what I, was your I, friendship group like? Well, when I, you were a I kid? grew. Up, I think people sort of think I'm I'm quite well spoken. Um, and I went to Cambridge, so people kind of assume public school. I went to the local school, but it happened to be a grammar school. It's quite a, so it was on the Britwell Estate, which is one of the biggest estates in England. It's where they cleared the slum. When they cleared the slums of the East End, they moved everyone out to Slough. And they had a grammar school, but it was on this massive estate. So it was quite, it was quite rough. Uh, and then I moved schools when I was 16. I know there's a couple of young people in. Move schools. Because you become acutely aware that you're a story that you tell yourself. So you move schools when you're 16. You can suddenly forget all of that, like, oh, I was fucking tear away, and go, I'm fine. That's good. Were you a bit tasty in your teens? No. <laughs> I really wasn't. I really wasn't. But I always hung around with guys that were fucking awesomely hard <laughs> all of my friends were like I remember at college like, all my friends were like sort of six three, six four, and I, I, had a, I had a big mouth but I was always alright yeah were you the guy in the gang who was like standing behind the big guy going yeah get him I was standing at the front going I, I mean <laughs> I don't know how I got away with shit what kind of shit are we talking I remember a guy pulling a knife on us um, outside a pub and this, this my mate Paul who was like into MMA before MMA was the thing. And just, just walked up to the guy and went, yeah, I'm not the guy you want to fuck with. And he, just he, like, he said that for And he just like melted away. <laughs> he was like a Hindu cow. Like, mm. <laughs> so in what respect? I'm sorry. Like, he was me. just so fucking calm in a fight. Ah, like he's seen it all before. Like, ah. just cool. I'm not that guy. I'm not like... Who do you reckon you could take in a fight? I reckon most of the girls. <laughs> I'm joking. So, I realise. Sorry. It's remembered we're in Cardiff. No. Very, very few of the girls. I've had four pints of fucking brains. Take your fucking head off. So that was Jimmy. Part two coming at you later this week. Uh, We're going to talk about loads more stuff there. It's a whole other hour, maybe even more. Um, No extras this time, but you can always join the Insiders Club to support the podcast and get ad-free episodes and all sorts of stuff like that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Thank you once again to Jimmy for coming onto the show and and for that whole experience, which was just so much fun. Really, really enjoyable. Um, I think the, the, the stuff that you've heard today is largely from the Manchester show. There are also bits from Birmingham, bits from Cardiff. And I might, if there is an appetite for it, release to the Insiders feed, just like the whole of the Newcastle one or something like that, because I don't think any of that made it onto this one. There are bits in common, but um, who knows? Maybe I'll do that. Right. Thank you to those new Insiders. Thanks to you for listening. Your producer was Nathan Wood. Jake Crossland did the logging. 
Peter Dobbing is your podcast correspondent and Rob Smouten does the music. Thank you. Follow at ComComPod on Twitter and Instagram, although nothing happens on Instagram. And please remember to retweet the pinned post whenever you find yourself on at ComComPod on Twitter and let more people know about the show. That's everything. Speak to you soon. Thank you.